Section 19 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 38 Primus in Indus. Before the Jacobite rising had been put down or the Pelhams absolutely set up, England, without knowing it, had sent forth a new conqueror, and might already have hailed the first promises of sway over one of the most magnificent empires of the earth. The name of the new conqueror was Robert Clive. The name of the magnificent empire was India. At that time, the influence of England over India was small to insignificance. A scrap of Bengal, the island and town of Bombay, Madras, and a fort or two. The average Englishman's knowledge of India was small even to non-existence. The few Englishmen who ever looked with eyes of intelligent information upon that great tract of territory, leaf-shaped and labelled India on the maps, knew that the English possessions therein were few and paltry. Three quite distinct sections called presidencies, each independent of the two others, and all governed by a supreme authority whose offices were in Leadenhall Street in London, represented the meagre nucleus of what was yet to be the vast Anglo-Indian empire. The first of these three presidencies was the Bombay Presidency, where the Indian Ocean washes the Malabar coast. The second was in the Carnatic, on the eastern side of the Leaf, where the waters of the Bay of Bengal wash the Coromandel coast, where the forts of St. George and St. David protected Madras and a smaller settlement. The third presidency was up towards the north, where the sacred Ganges, rushing through its many mouths to the sea, floods the Hooghly. Here the town of Calcutta was growing up around Fort William. These three little presidencies, plying their poor trade and depending for defense upon their ill-disciplined native soldiers, the Sapahis, whom we have come to call Sepoys, were all that had grown out of the nearly two centuries of relations with the leaf-shaped Indian land since first, in 1591, Captain Lancaster sailed the seas, since first the East India Company sprang into existence. It was not an agreeable two centuries for Englishmen who ever thought of India to read about. Two centuries of squabblings and strugglings with Dutch settlers and with Portuguese settlers, of desperate truckling to native princes. In 1664, the English East India Company found a rival more formidable than the Dutch or the Portuguese in the French East India Company, which the astuteness of Colbert set up at Pondicherry, and which throve with a rapidity that quite eclipsed the poor progress of the English traders. Even when in 1708 the old East India Company united its fortunes with the new India Company that had been formed and thus converted one rival into an ally, the superiority of the French remained uncontested, and daily waxed greater and greater, until it began to seem as if, in the words of Antony to Cleopatra, all the East should call her mistress. Such was the condition of affairs in the year 1743, 
when the apparently insignificant fact that a young gentleman of a ne'er-do-well disposition who seemed likely to come to a bad end in england and who was accordingly shipped off to india by his irritated relations altered and exalted the destinies not merely of a wealthy trading company but of the british crown in the market town of drayton and hales better known as market drayton in shropshire there lived in the reign of george i mr richard clive a man whose comparatively meagre abilities were divided between the profession of the law and the cares of a small and not very valuable estate in the little town on the river turn within sight of the old church built by stephen whose architectural characteristics were then happily unaltered by the hand of the eighteenth-century restorer the clives had been born and given in marriage and died and repeated the round ever since the twelfth century mr richard clive in the reign of george i married a manchester lady named gaskell who bore him many children of no note whatever but who bore him one very noteworthy child indeed his eldest son robert on september twenty ninth in the year seventeen twenty five there was a time a long time too during which the worthy mr richard clive persisted in regarding the birth of his eldest son as little less than a curse he could very well have said of robert what the queen mother says of richard of gloucester tetchy and wayward was his infancy seldom was there born into the world a more stubborn-minded high-spirited boy he may remind us a little of the young mirabeau in his strenuous impassioned youth in the estimate which those nearest to him and most ignorant of him formed of the young lion cub in the domestic litter in the strange promise which the great career fulfilled there was a kind of madness in the impish pranks which the boy clive played in market drayton scaring the timid and scandalizing the respectable he climbed to the top of the lofty steeple of that church which dated from the days of stephen and perched himself upon a stone spout near the dizzy summit with a cool courage which stephen himself might have envied he got round him from among the idle lads of the town a list of lawless resolutes and like david made himself a captain over them for the purpose of levying a kind of guerrilla warfare upon the shopkeepers of the little town and making them pay tribute for the sanctity of their windows in fact he behaved as wildly as the wildest schoolboy could behave drifting from school to school to learn nothing from each new master and only to leave behind at each the record of an incorrigible reprobate nobody seems to have discovered that there was anything of the man of genius in the composition of the incorrigible reprobate and so it came about that the town of market drayton in general and the respectable family of the clives in particular breathed more freely when it was known that young robert was bound to john company that he had accepted a writership in the east india service and had actually sailed for madras the career to which the young clive was thus devoted did not on the face of it appear to be especially brilliant the voyage in itself to begin with was a terrible business a six months voyage was then regarded as an astonishingly quick passage and in clive's case the voyage was longer even than usual it was more than a year after he left england before he arrived at madras as his ship had stayed for some months at the brazils clive arrived at madras with no money 
with many debts and with some facility in speaking portuguese acquired during the delay in the brazils he had absolutely no friends in india and made no friends for many months after his arrival it would be hard to think of a more desolate position for a proud shy high-spirited lad with a strong strain of melancholy in his composition we find him sighing for manchester with all the profound and pathetic longing which inspires the noble old english ballad farewell manchester it is not easy for us to-day who associate the name of manchester with one of the greatest manufacturing towns in the world to appreciate to the full either the spirit of the old ballad or the longing aspiration which clive had to see manchester again the centre of all my wishes but if he was homesick if he was lonely if he was poor in pocket and weak in health shadowed by melancholy and saddened by exile he never for a moment suffered his pride to abate or his courage to sink he treated his masters of the east india company with the same scornful spirit which he had of old shown to the shopkeepers of market drayton and the schoolmasters of shropshire in the wretched mood of mind and body that clive owned during his early days at madras the constitutional melancholy asserted itself with conquering force and he twice attempted his life on each occasion the pistol which he turned upon his desperate and disordered brain missed fire yet clive had meant most thoroughly and consistently to kill himself he did not like byron discover after the attempt was made that the weapon he had aimed at his life was not loaded each time the pistol was properly charged and primed and each time it was the accident of the old flintlock merely causing a flash in the pan which saved his life in a nature that is melancholy a tinge of superstition is appropriate and it is hardly surprising if clive saw in the successive chance a proof that he was not meant as yet to perish by self-slaughter i must be destined for great things he thought and he was right between that attempt at suicide and the next lay long years of unexampled glory lay the pomp of oriental courts and the glitter of oriental warfare lay the foundation and establishment of that empire of india which is to-day one of the greatest glories of the british crown an empire mightier wealthier statelier than any which arungzebe swayed and whose might and wealth and state were mainly due to the courage and the genius of the lonely melancholy lad the humble writer in the service of john company who had endeavoured in his solitude and his despair to end his young life at the muzzle of his pistol what was the condition of india at the time when clive was making unavailing efforts to cut short his career the country itself was given over to the wildest confusion with the death of aurangzebe in seventeen o seven the majestic empire of the house of baber came to an end the empire of alexander did not crumble more disastrously to pieces after the death of the macedonian prince than did the empire of the moguls fall to pieces after the death of aurangzebe the pitiable and despicable successors of a great prince worse than sardanapalus worse than the degraded caesars of the basest days of byzantium squandered their unprofitable hours in shameful pleasure while the great empire fell to pieces trampled by the conquering feet of persian princes of afghan invaders of the wild mahratta chiefs 
between the fierce invaders from the northern hills who ravaged and levied tribute and established dominion of their own and such still powerful viceroys as held their own and offered a nominal allegiance to the mogul line the glory of the race of tamerlane was dimmed indeed it occurred to one man watching all the welter of the indian world where mussulman and hindu struggled for supremacy it occurred to duplex that in this struggle lay the opportunity for some european power for his european power for france to gain for herself and for the daring adventurer who should shape her oriental policy an influence hitherto undreamed of by the statesmen of the west it was not given to duplex to guess that what he dreamed of and nearly accomplished was to be carried out at last by robert clive the history of french empire in india contains two specially illustrious names the name of la bourdonnais and the name of duplex the first had practically called into existence the two colonies of the ile de france and of bourbon the second had founded the town of chandernagor in the bay of bengal and as governor-general of the french east india company had established himself at pondicherry with all the luxury and more than the luxury of a veritable oriental prince it may be that if these two men had been better able to agree together the fortunes of the french nation in the indies might have been very different but a blind and uncompromising jealousy divided them whatever duplex did was wrong in the eyes of la bourdonnais whatever la bourdonnais did was wrong in the eyes of duplex and duplex was the stronger man of the two and he finally triumphed for a time in the war that was raging la bourdonnais saw his opportunity he determined to anticipate duplex in beginning hostilities against the english in india he set sail for the island of bourbon with a fleet of nine vessels which he had equipped at his proper cost and an army of some three thousand men which included a large proportion of negroes after a successful engagement with the ships of war under the command of admiral burnett outside madras la bourdonnais disembarked besieged madras and compelled the town to capitulate so far the star of la bourdonnais was in the ascendant but the terms which he exacted from the conquered town were by their very moderation the means of his undoing with the keys of the conquered town in his hand with the french colours floating bravely from fort st george with all the stored wealth of the company as spoils of war la bourdonnais thought that he might be not unlenient in the terms he accorded to his enemies he allowed the english inhabitants of madras to remain prisoners of war on parole and stipulated that the town should remain in his hands until the payment of a ransom of some nine millions of francs the triumph of la bourdonnais aroused however not the admiration but the jealousy of duplex out of la bourdonnais very victory the cunning of duplex discovered a means to humiliate his rival the vague schemes which he had formed for the authority of france and for his influence in india did not at all jump with the restoration of madras once conquered to the english he declared that la bourdonnais had gone beyond his powers that terms to the vanquished on indian soil could be made by the governor of pondicherry and the governor of pondicherry alone 
he refused to ratify la bourdonnais convention and instead declared that the capitulation was at an end marched upon madras insisted upon the pillage and destruction of a great portion of the town arrested a large number of the leading englishmen including the governor of fort st george and conveyed them with all circumstances of public ignominy to pondicherry as for la bourdonnais who had taken so gallant a step to secure french supremacy in india he was placed under arrest and sent to france where the bastille awaited him he had fallen before his vindictive rival the inhabitants of madras smarting under what may fairly be called the treachery of dupleix considered rightly that they were no longer bound by the convention with the luckless la bourdonnais one at least of the inhabitants was a man not likely to be bound by the mere letter of a convention which had already been broken in the spirit clive disguised himself as a mussulman we may be permitted to wonder how a man who to the end of his days remained eccentrically ignorant of all eastern languages accomplished this successfully and escaping from madras made his way to fort st david at fort st david his military career began the desperate courage which had carried him to the top of the tower of stephen's church and which had enabled him to overawe the military bully who was the terror of fort st david now found its best vent in welcoming the french like the hero of burns ballad at the sound of the drum the peace which was concluded between england and france sent clive for a season however back to the counting-house and gave back madras again to the english company but the ambition of dupleix was not a thing to be bounded by the circumscription of war or peace between england and france england and france might be at peace but there was no need that the english east india company and the french east india company should be at peace as well the internal troubles of india afforded dupleix the opportunity he coveted of pushing his own fortunes and doing his best to drive the english traders out of the field unfortunately for him however his opportunity was also the opportunity of the young writer and ensign who had already won the admiration and the esteem of major lawrence then looked upon as the first english officer in india while the french still held madras before the treaty of aix-la-chapelle compelled the reluctant dupleix to restore it to the english a military episode which might almost be called an accident had helped to confirm enormously the influence of france in india the nabob of the carnatic offended by the action of the english governor of madras who had omitted to send him those presents which are essential to all stages of oriental diplomacy had practically winked at the action of the more liberal-handed dupleix in his movement against madras when too late the nabob heard of the fall of madras he sent an army to recapture the town and called upon the french governor to surrender it the governor was duval d'espremesnil the father of that mad d'espremesnil who fulgenates through a portion of the french revolution he refused to obey the nabob opening fire upon his forces and repulsed them the repulse was followed a little later by a vigorous attack of the french troops under paradis which smashed the armament of the nabob to pieces at st tome on november fourth seventeen forty six this victory gave the french a prestige of which dupleix was the very man to appreciate the full importance when in seventeen forty eight nizem al molk 
the viceroy of the deccan died there arose at once pretenders not merely to the deccan viceroyalty but also to the government of the carnatic the first was claimed by mirzapfa jung the second by chunda sahib mirzapfa jung and chunda sahib profoundly impressed by the triumph of french arms two years earlier appealed to dupleix to help them joined their forces and invaded the carnatic dupleix was not unwilling to listen to the appeal of the invaders he saw that the chance had arisen for him to constitute himself the warwick the king-maker of india he lent all the force of his european troops of his native troops trained in the european fashion and of the prestige of france to the invaders the old nabob of the carnatic anaverdi khan was defeated and killed his son fled with his broken army to trichinopoly and the invaders nominally and dupleix actually reigned supreme in the carnatic at that moment the sun of dupleix's fortunes reached its zenith he was the chosen companion and confidant of the new nizam of the deccan he was made governor of india from the river krishna to cape comoran he pomped it with more than oriental splendor in the pageantries of triumph at pondicherry he set up on the scene of his victory a stately column bearing in four languages inscriptions celebrating his fame he had treasure power and influence even to his ambitious heart's content when mirzapfa jung died shortly after his accession to the government of the deccan dupleix held equal influence over his successor he might well have believed that his glory was complete his plans perfected he might well have believed that he could afford to smile at the feeble efforts which the english made to stay his progress he soon ceased to smile clive then five-and-twenty years old urged upon his superiors that trichinopoly must soon fall before famine and leaguer that with the overthrow of the house of anaverdi khan the power of the french over india would be established and the power of the english in india destroyed the great deed to be done was to raise the siege of trichinopoly this clive coolly proposed to do by effecting a counter diversion in besieging arcot the favoured home of the nabobs with a little handful of an army two hundred europeans and three hundred sepoys clive marched through the wildest weather to arcot captured it and prepared to hold his conquest we may perhaps here be permitted to say that in using as we shall continue to do the old familiar forms of spelling the names of indian towns and of indian princes we do so not in ignorance of the fact that in many if not most cases they present but a very poor idea indeed of the actual oriental sounds and spelling the modern writers on indian history adopt a new and more scientific spelling which makes arcot arcot with a k and trichinopoly trichinopoly but all things considered it seems best for the present to adhere to those old forms which have become as it were portion and parcel of english history chunda sahib who was besieging trichinopoly immediately dispatched four thousand men against arcot which joining with the defeated garrison and a few french made up a muster of some ten thousand men under rajah sahib chunda sahib's son against a garrison of little more than three hundred the defence of arcot is one of the most brilliant episodes in history 
it reads rather like some of those desperate and heroic adventures in which the fiction of the elder dumas delighted than the sober chronicle of recorded warfare for fifty days the siege raged for fifty days rajah sahib did his best to take the town and for fifty days clive and his little band of europeans and sepoys frustrated all his efforts the stubborn defence began to create allies the fighting capacity of the english had come to be regarded with great contempt by the native races but the contempt was now rapidly changing to admiration murari rao the great mahratta leader who had been hired to assist the cause of mohammed ali but who had hitherto hung in idleness upon the carnatic frontier convinced that the english must be defeated now declared that since he had learned that the english could fight he was willing to fight for them and with them and prepared to move to the assistance of clive before he could arrive rajah sahib made a desperate last effort to capture arcot was completely defeated with great loss and withdrew from arcot leaving clive and his little army masters of the place great was the glory of clive in fort st george but clive was not going to content himself with so much and no more with an army increased to nearly a thousand men he assailed the enemy defeated rajah sahib once and again and in his triumphal progress caused to be raised to the ground the memorial city which the pride of duplex had erected to his victory and the vaunting monument which set forth in four languages the glory of his deeds the astonished nabobs began for the first time to understand that the glory of france was not invincible that a new star had arisen before which the star of duplex must pale and might vanish the star of clive continued to mount though the arrival of major lawrence from england took from his hands the chief command he worked under lawrence as gallantly as when he was alone responsible for his desperate undertakings and success as before followed all the enterprises in which he was concerned trichinopoly was relieved chunda sahib was captured by the marathas and put to death kavalong and chingaput two of the most important french forts were captured by clive with an army as unpromising as falstaff's ragged regiment at this point and on the full tide of victory clive's health broke down and he was compelled to return to england for change of climate before he left madras he married miss maskelyne never did a man return to his native land under such auspicious conditions who had gone thence under conditions so inauspicious the bad boy of market drayton was now the illustrious and opulent soldier whom the gentlemen of the india house delighted to salute as general clive and about whom it seemed as if it was impossible for the nation to make too much ado clive was now seized with the ambition to play a part in home politics the general election of seventeen fifty four seemed to offer him a tempting opportunity of entering parliament he came forward as one of the members of st michael's in cornwall was opposed by newcastle and supported by sandwich and fox was returned was petitioned against and was unseated on petition to fight a parliamentary election in those days meant the spending of a very great deal of money and clive who had squandered his well-earned fortune right and left since his return to his native land found himself after he was unseated in a decidedly disagreeable position his money was dwindling 
his hope of political triumphs had vanished into thin air. Naturally enough, his thoughts turned back to the India of his youth. The curious good luck that always attended upon him stood him in good stead here. If he had need of the India of his youth, the India of his youth had need of him. If France and England were not at war, the rumor of war was busy between them, and there was a desire for good leaders in the advancing English colonies in India. Poor Duplex was out of the way already. The brilliant spirit whom Clive's genius had overcrowed had vanished forever from the scenes of his triumphs and his humiliations. He had suffered something of the same hard measure that he had himself meted out to his colleague La Bourdonnais. He had been recalled in comparative disgrace to France, with ruined fortunes and ruined hopes, to die, a defeated and degraded man, the shadow of his own great name. But the influence of France was not extinct in India. It might at any moment reassert itself, at any moment come to the push of arms between France and England in the East, as well as in the West, and where could the English look for so capable a leader of men as Clive? So it came about that in the year 1755, Clive again sailed the seas for India, under very different conditions from those under which he first adventured for the East. Then he was an unknown, unappreciated rapscallion of a lad, needy, homesick, desperate, and alone. Now he was going out as the governor of Fort St. David, as lieutenant-colonel in the British army, with a record of fame and fortune behind him. New fame, new fortune awaited him almost on the very moment of his arrival in India. The pirate stronghold of Gariya fell before him almost as easily as if the place had been New Jericho and Clive a second Joshua. But there was greater work in store for him than the destruction of pirate strongholds. Bengal became suddenly the theatre of a terrible drama. Up to the year 1756, the tranquillity of the English settlers and traders in Bengal had been undisturbed. Their relations with the Nabob Alivardi Khan had been of the friendliest kind, and the very friendliness of these relations had had the effect of making the English residents in Bengal, like the native population, men of a milder mould than those whom hard fortune had fashioned into soldiers and statesmen at Madras. But in the year 1756, the Nabob Ali Vardi Khan died, and was succeeded by his grandson, Surajjud Dalla, the infamous in English history as Surajja Daula. This creature, who incarnated in his own proper person all the worst vices of the East, without apparently possessing any of the East's redeeming virtues, cherished a very bitter hatred of the English. Surajja Daula was unblessed with the feeblest glimmerings of statesmanship. It seemed to his enfeebled mind that it would be not only a very good thing to drive the English out of Bengal, but that it would be also an exceedingly easy thing to do. All he wanted, it seemed to him, was a pretext, and to such a mind a pretext was readily forthcoming. Had not the English dogs fortified their settlement without his permission? Had they not afforded shelter to some victim flying from his omnivorous rapacity? These were pretexts good enough to serve the insane brain of Surajah Daula. He attacked Fort William with an overwhelming force. 
the english traders unwarlike timorous and deserted by their leaders made little or no resistance the madman had fort william in his power and used his power like a madman the memory of the black hole of calcutta still remains a mark of horror and of terror upon our annals of indian empire when lord macaulay eighty-four years after the event penned his famous passage in which he declared that nothing in history or in fiction not even the story which ugolino told in the sea of everlasting ice approached the horrors of the black hole he wrote before the worst horrors of indian history had yet become portion and parcel of our own history but even those who write to-day more than a century and a quarter after that time those in whose minds the memories are fresh of the butcher's well at cawnpore and the massacre on the river bank those to whom the names of nana sahib and azimullah khan sound as horridly as the names of fiends even those can still think of the black hole as almost incomparable in horror and of surajah dowlah as among the worst of oriental murderers it is true that certain efforts have been made to reduce the measure of surajah dowlah's guilt colonel mallison than whom there is no fairer or abler indian historian thinks that there can be no doubt that surajah dowlah did not desire the death of his english prisoners mr Howell, one of the few survivors of that awful night the man whose narrative thrilled and still thrills horrified and still horrifies the civilized world does give testimony that goes toward clearing the character of surajah dowlah from direct complicity in that terrible crime i had in all three interviews with him he wrote the last in darbar before seven when he repeated his assurances to me on the word of a soldier that no harm should come to us and indeed i believe his orders were only general that we for that night should be secured and that what followed was the result of revenge and resentment in the breasts of the lower jemidars to whose custody we were delivered for the number of their order killed during the siege yet these words do not go far to cleanse surajah dowlah's memory what had occurred the english prisoners were brought before the triumphant nabob bullied and insulted and finally left in charge of the nabob's soldiery while the nabob himself retired to his slumber the soldiery whether prompted by revenge or mere merciless cruelty forced the prisoners one hundred and forty-six in number into the garrison prison a fearful place only twenty feet square known as the black hole the senses sicken in reading what happened after this determination was carried out the death struggles of those unhappy english people crowded in that narrow space without air in the fearful summer heat stir the profoundest pity the profoundest anguish the nabob soldiers all through that fearful night revelled in the sights and sounds that their victims sufferings offered to them when the night did end and the awakened despot did allow the door of the black hole to be opened only twenty-three out of the hundred and forty-six victims were alive the hundred and twenty-three dead bodies were hurriedly buried in a common pit it is simply impossible to exonerate surajah dowlah from the shame and stain of that deed this savage who passed the word of a soldier that the lives of his prisoners should be spared took no precautions to ensure the carrying out of his promise if as mr Howell says the lower jemidars were thirsting for revenge then the nabob who gave his prisoners over to the care of those jemidars 
was directly responsible for their deeds. Even in Sirajah Dowla's army there must have been men, there must have been officers, to whom the tyrant, if he had wished his prisoners to be well treated, could have entrusted them, in the full confidence and certainty that his commands would be carried out, and his humane wishes humanely interpreted. But even if, by the utmost straining we can, in any degree acquit the nabob of the direct personal responsibility before the act, his subsequent conduct involves him in direct complicity and forces upon him all the responsibility and all the infamy. He did not punish the miscreants who forced their victims into the black hole and who gloated over their appalling sufferings. He did not treat the survivors with ordinary humanity. He was evidently convinced that he could deal with the wretched English as he pleased, that their power in India was annihilated, that Sirajah Dalla was among the mightiest princes of the earth. For six long months, for a fantastical half-year, Sirajah Dalla reveled in the crazy dream of his own omnipotence. Then came retribution, swift, successive, comprehensive. Clive was upon him, Clive the unconquerable, sacking his towns, putting his garrisons to the sword recapturing those places from which Sirajah Dalla had imagined that he had banished the Englishman forever. The news of the tragedy of the Black Hole and of the capture of Calcutta and Fort William had reached Madras in August, and the warlike community had resolved upon prompt and speedy revenge. But it took time to raise the expedition, took time to dispatch the expedition. In October, the army of 2,400 men, of which 900 were European troops, and 1,500 sepoys sailed for the Hooghly under Clive as military and Admiral Watson as naval commander. Hostile winds delayed the armament until December, but when it did reach its destination, it carried all before it. The luck which always attended upon Clive was still faithful to him. The nabob at the head of his vast hordes was soon as eager to come to terms with Clive at the head of his little handful of men as he had before been eager to obliterate the recollection of the Englishman from the soil of Bengal. He offered to treat with Clive. He was ready to make terms which, from a military point of view, were satisfactory. He was evidently convinced that he had underrated the power of England, and he was prepared to pay a heavy penalty for his blunder. We are now approaching that chapter of Clive's career which has served his enemies with their readiest weapon, and has filled his admirers with the deepest regret. The negotiations between Clive and Sirajah Dowla were conducted on the part of all the Orientals concerned with Sirajah Dowla to Omichund, the wealthy Bengalee who played the part of go-between, with an amount of treachery that has not been surpassed even in the torturous records of Oriental treachery but unhappily the treachery was not confined to the oriental negotiators not confined to the wretched despot on the throne not confined to mir jaffier the principal commander of his troops who wanted the throne for himself not confined to the unscrupulous omichund who plotted with his left hand against the sirajah dowla and with his right hand against the english treachery as audacious treachery more ingenious treachery more successful was deliberately practised by clive the brilliant and gallant soldier of fortune showed himself to be more than a match for oriental cunning in all the worst vices of a vicious oriental diplomacy if sirajah dowla was unable to make up his miserable mind if he alternately promised and denied cajoled and threatened clive on his side 
while affecting to treat with Surajah Dalla, was deliberately supporting the powerful conspiracy against Surajah Dalla, the object of which was to place Mir Jafir on the throne. If Omichund, with the keys of the conspiracy in his hand, threatened to betray all to Surajah Dalla unless he was promised the heaviest hush money, Clive, on his side, was perfectly ready to promise without the remotest intention of paying. If Omichund, wary and suspicious, was determined to have his bond in writing, Clive was quite ready to meet him with a false and fraudulent bond. Clive professed to be perfectly willing that in the secret treaty which was being drawn up between the English and Mir Jafir, a clause should be inserted promising the fulfillment of all Omichund's claims. But as Clive had not the remotest intention of satisfying these claims, he composedly prepared two treaties. One, the one by which he and Mir Jafir were to be bound, was written on white paper and contained no allusion to the avaricious Omichund. Another, on red paper, which was to be disregarded by the parties to the swindle, contained a paragraph according to Omichund's heart's desire. Thus bad begins, but worse remains behind. Clive, to his great astonishment, found that Admiral Watson entertained different views from his about the honor of an English soldier and gentleman. However convenient it might be to bamboozle Omichund with a sham treaty, Admiral Watson declined to be a party to the trick by signing his name to the fraudulent document. Yet Admiral Watson's name was essential to the success of the Red Treaty, and Clive showed that he was not a man to stick at trifles. He wanted Admiral Watson's signature. He knew that Omichund would want Admiral Watson's signature. He satisfied himself, and he satisfied Omichund by forging Admiral Watson's signature at the bottom of the Red Treaty. It is simply impossible to imagine any defense of Clive's conduct in this most disgraceful business. The best that can be said for him is that the whole process of the treason was so infamous the fabrication of the Red Treaty so revolting a piece of duplicity that the forging of Admiral Watson's name does not materially add to the darkness of the complete transaction. Nothing can palliate Clive's conduct. It may indeed be said that as civilized troops, after long engagements in petty wars with savage races, lose that morale and discipline which come from contests with their military peers, so minds steeped in the degrading atmosphere of oriental diplomacy become inevitably corrupted and lose the fine distinction between right and wrong but so specious a piece of special pleading cannot serve clive's turn english diplomacy at home and abroad has always with the rarest exceptions plumed itself on its truthfulness and has often been successful by reason of that very truthfulness the practically unanimous condemnation which Clive's countrymen then and since have passed upon his action with regard to the Red Treaty is the best answer to all such pitiful prevarications. However, Clive did prepare a sham treaty, did forge Admiral Watson's name, did fool Omichun to the top of his bent. Omichun being thus cunningly brought over, Clive prepared for action, flung defiance at Surajah Dowla, and marched against him. On June 23, 1757, the fate of England in India was decided by the famous Battle of Plassey, or, as it should be more correctly called, Palassi. Plassey was a great victory, yet in the words of the conspirator in Ben Jonson's Catiline, it was but a cast of dice in fortune's hand, that it might have been a great defeat. 
Clive was astonishingly, grotesquely outnumbered. The legendary deeds of chivalrous paladins who at the head of a little body of knights sweep away whole hosts of Paynims at Saragossa or Roncesvalles were rivaled by Clive's audacity in opposing his few regiments to the swollen armaments of the Nabob. Moreover, Mir Jaffir, whose alliance with the English, whose treason to Sirajah Dowlah was an important part of the scheme, was not to be counted upon. He hesitated, unwilling, to fling his fortunes into the English scale before he was convinced that the English were certain of success, although he was himself one of the most important factors in the possibility of that success. But the greatest danger that threatened the English arms was, curiously enough, due to Clive himself. On the eve of Plassey, he held a council of war, at which it was discussed whether they should fight at once or postpone fighting to what might seem a more seasonable opportunity. Clive, at this council, departed from his usual custom. He gave his own vote first, and he voted against taking any immediate action. Naturally enough, the majority of the council of war voted with Clive, in spite of the strenuous opposition of Major Eyre Coote and a small minority. By a majority of thirteen to seven, it was resolved not to fight. It is needless to speculate on what would have been the fortunes of the English in Bengal if that vote had settled the question. Luckily, Clive was a man of genius and was not either afraid to admit that he had made a mistake or to change his mind. A short period of solitary reflection convinced him that he and the majority were wrong and that Eyre Coote and the minority were right. He informed Eyre Coote of his new decision, gave the necessary orders, and the next day the Battle of Plassey was fought and won. It is not necessary here to go into the details of that momentous day. The desperate courage, daring, and skill of the English troops carried all before them. Their cannonade scattered death and confusion into the nabob's ranks. Within an hour, an army of 60,000 men was defeated, with astonishingly slight loss to the victors. Sirajah Dowla, abandoned at the judicious moment by one traitor, Mir Jaffir, was flying for his life, in obedience to the insidious counsels of another traitor, Raja Dulabram. From that hour, Bengal became part of the English Empire. The fate of the different actors on the Indian side was soon decided. Mir Jaffir was duly invested with the Nabob's authority over Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa. Amichund, on learning the shameful trick of the Red Treaty, went mad and died mad. Sirajah Dalla was soon captured and promptly killed by Mir Jaffir. The Black Hole was avenged. Clive had now reached the pinnacle of his greatness. Victor of Plassey, governor of Bengal, he remained in India for three more resplendent years. He added to the number of his conquests by defeating the great enterprise of Shah Alam against Mir Jaffir and shattered the Dutch descent upon the Hooghly, a descent secretly favored by the ever-treacherous Mir Jaffir, both on land and sea. Then, with laurel victory upon his sword and smooth success strewn before his feet, Clive resolved to return again to England. He sailed from India full of honors in 1760, the year in which George II died. When he arrived in England, George III was king. Here for the moment we must leave him, the greatest living soldier of his country, with a career of practically unbroken glory behind him. He had reached his apogee. We shall meet with him again under less happy conditions, when the sun of Plassey had begun to set. End of chapter 38